Let me read the passage for us. Hebrews chapter 4, the big number 4, and the small number 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we have just read about the power of your word, of what it's able to do. And so, Father, now as we approach it, as we gaze upon the words which you have revealed for us, I pray that you would give us hearts of humility, Lord. Open up our hearts and let it penetrate to the deepest and darkest points of our soul. Lord, that we may see our sin, that we may see how we have wronged you as our creator. And Lord, that we may turn to Christ and believe in the gospel. So God, be with us in this task. This is your word and is living. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would make these words come alive to our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good preaching will always lead to a healthy church. Whenever you find bad preaching or a lack of preaching, you will find a church that has capitulated on cultural issues. They've lost the gospel. And that's what happened to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church became synonymous with political power. They cared more about tradition than they did more about even what God's word taught. And so a few faithful men in an area of time where we call the Protestant Reformation began to actually just look at what the Bible taught and compare it to the practices of their church at the time. And what they found and what they saw about what Scripture taught and what the church taught was not the same. And so we call this period of time the Protestant Reformation, is where people were protesting the Catholic Church and they were seeking to reform the theology that has gotten away from the Bible. And in this season of Protestant Reformation, a lot of theologians started writing all their new Reformed theology, just theology that came in the season of the Reformation. And even though all the good theologians write down their books, really what actually sparked the Reformation, what allowed for people to actually hear the gospel again, was faithful men who preached the word of God. One such of these men is John Calvin. John Calvin was an academic. He grew up in um, the academia world, and he had no intentions ever to be a pastor. But he felt the Lord called him to Geneva, Switzerland. And in 1536, he became a pastor there. And he preached twice on Sunday. He would teach in the seminary every single day of the week and would counsel people disciple people, 
write his theological volumes and would teach and teach and teach. He took a little break, left Geneva, came back and did another eight years where on average he preached three and a half sermons a week. And John Calvin is one of those freaks of nature where he would preach straight out of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible. So he wouldn't have the Bible in his own language. He would just pull up his Greek New Testament and with no notes, preach. You wonder, some of these men in history, if they had a computer, what they could do. And it was through the faithful preaching of the word that the church began to have life again. The, The gospel went out to people. And it has always been the case where there is a steady, healthy diet of God's word being preached to people. There will be life. There will be health. The last two times we've looked at Hebrews, there's been a great warning. If you look down with me really quick in chapter 4, verse 2, it says this. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All of chapter 4 is a warning that the Israelites had heard the good news preached to them. They had seen all of the miraculous signs of God, but it was of no benefit to them. And so we have this reference back to Psalm 95 again and again And again, saying, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. And we ended last week talking about the danger and the fear we must have about unbelief in our own lives. Because just as the temptation was for the Israelites to hear the good news preached to them and to not actually believe, so it is the danger for us who have heard the good news and to not actually believe. And so that's why, if you look back down at chapter 4, verse 11, the verse right before we started, it says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author of Hebrews is making a clear and compelling case that we must always be examining our evil and unbelieving hearts to see if we are really believing in entering this rest. And that's why in verse 12, he says this, for, for. In essence, if, if, if we need to strive and to make sure that we're actually entering this rest, how do we do this? If there's a temptation for us and as youth group kids and church kids and kids who've gone to Bible camps and summer camps to just hear this word, but yet to maybe one day walk away from it, what must we do? And that's why he says for. If we all know people who at one point confess Christ with their lips, but yet right now it seems that they live in a life where Christ is not in it. This is why the author of Hebrews adds in this very very rich and important passage. And here's his point in these two little verses that we're going to consider tonight. That since the word of God is powerful 
to reveal the hearts and intentions of men, we must be diligent to listen to it. That since the word of God is powerful to expose, we must be careful to listen to it. And it kind of goes back to what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What I want to do tonight is I want to show us two ways in which the word of God is powerful. Why the Bible should be cherished and loved and preached and given careful attention to it it's powerful and it's powerful first because it has the power to expose all things look down at verse 12 for in essence here's his application of all that what he's saying in chapter four so far he kind of says hey the word of god it's living and it's active first is living and it's primarily living because it's authored by god who is not dead but who is alive Every other book that has ever been written has been written by someone who is either dead or going to be dead. You know, I sometimes hear people like, you need to read modern authors, but you also need to read all the dead old guys. Maybe good advice. But there's a sense here where the author of Hebrews is saying, when you open up your Bible and you read it, and you hear it preached, it's unlike any other text out there. It's not like the U.S. Constitution. It's not like the love letter you may receive from someone. This word has life in it. And so we read other places in the New Testament that the word of God is profitable for teaching The word of God is really our source of how we know God. And so in essence, some people debate, what does it really mean to say the word of God? Some people think that's a reference to Christ himself. But really, I think the author of Hebrews here is saying all of God's disclosed revelation of who he is. And so that is both what he's revealed in this written word. And that is also in the incarnate word of Jesus. Both Jesus and this word cannot be separated because God is the author. But more than it being living, it is also active. It is active. Now, I'm not really that active a person. I wish I was more. Um, Maybe it's the season of life that I'm in. Right? And so we look at this and we kind of think, well, okay, the word of God is living. Okay, get that. God's alive and he's breathing through his word and all that stuff. And it's active. What What does it mean when he says active. Well, I don't want to necessarily have us have the opinion that it's only active in the sense when we open it and it can become active. But here's really what the author means when he says it's active, that it's effective. It's what we would call effectual calling. Let me tell you something. When God's word is properly preached and properly taught, it always accomplishes the purpose and will of God. It is always 
active. It is always effective. It is always going to do what it aims to do. Now, let me give you something to think about here. There are plenty of people who read the Bible and they see something they don't like. They're like, why does it talk like that about these kind of people? What, what is, why does it seem like God only chooses some? And some people look at it and they hear the explanations and they say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with the Bible. They hear the word, but yet they don't respond in faith. They don't respond in thanksgiving. They don't respond in an open heart to it. And so you kind of think, well, was it really effective? Did it really accomplish its effectual calling? And that's where I want to tell you this. God's word is always effective in that it either confronts sinners to repent and to believe or it perpetuates the unbelief that is already in someone's heart. But let me be very clear. God's word never comes back void. I want you to know that that's, that's, a, that's a strong thing to say. That either God's word is causing you to believe more or it's causing you to not believe. But whatever it is, it's always doing its effect. The author of Hebrews is saying here, listen, hey, God's word, this gospel that we preach, and really what he's referring to in his context is the Old Testament. You know, that part of the Bible that we never look at. He's saying this word, God's word, it is something that is not just kind of when you get the chance, look at it. This is a living thing that is causing to have a real effect in people's life. And he goes on to say this, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I tell you, I cannot tell you how many commentators want to parse out and talk about what are the differences between you know, soul and spirit and joints and marrow and are, is the author making all of these connections and there's all these, everyone just wants to talk about each individual word and it means all of these things but here is in essence what I just want to kind of boil it down to. The word of God and some people by the way think that the author of Hebrews is Luke because of this one little passage because when he talks about a sword it's really in the Greek the word for scalpel and we know that Luke was a physician Right? But he's saying here that the word of God is invasive. That it has the power to go all the way deep down and to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the word of God has power to expose all of who you are. Do you want to know something? We do our very best to put on a mask, a disguise of not letting people know who I really am. If people really knew what I thought about, would they think the same of me? If people really saw my insecurities, if people really knew what I've done, 
you know, I, I've used this illustration so many times, but I, and I use it because it's so helpful. If you had a screen on your forehead that showed your every thought, how would that make you feel? Joel has the perfect response. You would put your hand over your head. Am I wrong? And here's the thing. This word cuts through all of that and it reveals your hearts and your intentions for what it is. Only this word can really have the power to tell a man who he really is, to tell a woman who she really is believing in. And so in essence, sometimes a surgeon may have to get a scalpel and he has to go in deep and he might have to cut things out in order to make it healthy again, make your body healthy. So is it the word of God that cuts us deep into the heart and shows us our sin and shows us the way in which we have disobeyed our creator. And it lays before God our intentions and our evil, unbelieving ways. And you know why it does that? So that we may turn to God and enter the rest. Can I just tell you, the context of this entering God's rest has eternity in mind. To not listen to this word to hear the good news preached to you, but to still harden your heart means that you would forsake eternity. And so that's why this word is so powerful because it can actually get through all of the things in your life and get you to the point to where you can recognize who you are before God. Man, my iPad just died and had all my notes on it. Um, let's see if I can do this without it. I just get my Greek New Testament out, right? I just start preaching, right? <laughs> One point of application on this point, though. I think there's something I say a lot in my prayers. Um, maybe I don't say that often here, but every time before I get to preach, sometimes I will, I will say a, a very familiar thing. It comes from the book of James. And it says this. It says, um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me, let me give you um, a big word here. We need to adopt a hermeneutic of humility. And a hermeneutic of humility is just a way of, we need to come before God's word and study God's word with a sense of, God, your word has the power to really reveal who I am. I can't help but notice, even tonight, when I go to Starbucks to get my Americano before a youth group, and the barista turns his back, and I read the quote on his shirt from Lady Gaga, which says, don't ever let a single person in this world tell you who you are supposed to be. I think I might have butchered that, but something along those lines. And here's why that's so dangerous. Because the world says, you just be true to you. You just be you. Just be you. Don't ever let anyone tell you who, you who you want to be. You choose for yourself. And you know what the word of God says? I will reveal your true heart. 
And you actually need to change. Very different than what the world says. So guys, let me just tell you, when we come to scripture, may we have the humility of saying, God, your word, let it tell me how to live. May I sit under its authority. You know, to have a a hermeneutic of humility is to say, God, I want to be a revisionist. Not that I sit in here and try to look and revise the Bible, but that I let it revise me. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But the second way it's powerful, I think, is that it tells us of our need for redemption. Look what he says in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to him whom we must give an account. If you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, the second they sinned, the second they ate of that fruit, their eyes were opened. They recognized their nakedness. They recognized what they had done. And what they did in the process was they hid. They hid their sin. They, they tried to cover up, right? But, you know, it's funny. God looks down at Adam. And I don't think God was really asking for information. I think he knew. But he asked the man... Where are you? What have you done? And they felt that penetrating gaze of God upon their sin and what they had did. And in the same way, this very word, what it does is it makes us all completely exposed. God knows everything that you think. He knows everything that you have done. I find it so fascinating that we think that we get away with things if no one finds out. Yet nothing is hidden from his sight. That should scare you. When you go to those websites and you clear your history and you think that no one knows. When you have those evil, angry words at your parents in your heart or your siblings or your friends, God knows. And so the word of God, it, it exposes us. It tells us who we really are. And who we really are are people who have rebelled against God. And because of our rebellion, we deserve what it says here. We deserve to one day give an account to God. And because we are guilty, in this account, we have nothing to say. We have nothing to offer before God. This word levels us. But this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that he's talking about. He's urging us in chapter 4 to enter the rest. And the rest is this, that God has provided Jesus. That he is the one who's taken our sin. He is the one who will give an account for us because he is the one who lives sinlessly. And because by faith we can have his righteousness if we would believe in him and turn from our sin. And so God's word is powerful because it's effective, because it exposes us, because it reminds us again of our need to one day we will give an account to God that your life is not really your own. 
You were made for God's glory. You were made in his image to honor him. Yet we could not have failed God any more than we have. And so because this word is so powerful, let me give you five helpful tips of how we should approach the Bible. This is where my notes would have been helpful. But I'll see what I can do here. First, learn to love, treasure, and seek this word to be your ultimate good. If God's word has the power to truly show us who we are and show us our need for Christ and to turn from our sin, this should be the best news. This should be the best book. This should be the thing that we love the most. I tell you, in our day and age, we are so inclined to get to the end of our day, to put on Netflix, turn on Amazon Prime, and to just make our minds into mush, as our parents would say, right? We seek so many things in our entertainment and in our music. Yet I think because of what this passage is saying, because of the implications about it helping us to enter the rest of God, we should love this book. You know, if you read Psalm 119, I mean, there's just a man there, either it be David or Daniel, whoever wrote Psalm 119, who just is in love with God's word because, one, it helps him to obey God. It gives him practical things for life. But, two, I I think another implication of this word being so powerful is that we ought to study it and to read it and to meditate upon it. You know, there's a sense in which if I just go around and tell people that like, you should read the Bible, I might be accused of just being legalistic. Oh, you just think it just means that Christians, all we do is, you know, if you read your Bible and you pray a lot, then you're a good Christian. That's not wrong. Now, there's a sense in which if you build your identity on I'm a good Bible reader and God's going to love me more from that, and that's wrong, that's works religion. But if this is God's grace to you and he wants you to know who he is, and in this, there is a, 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 an ability to discern the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. And in every passage, there's a way for me to remind myself again of Christ and of my sin and ways to repent. Why wouldn't I want to read this every day? Why wouldn't I want friends to come and tell me, hey, man, you've been in the Word? I have never met a mature, healthy Christian who does not have a healthy diet of just memorizing Scripture of delighting and of just saying, I, I just want this, you know. I, I, I hate using myself in the good examples because I'm probably, most of the time, a bad example. But in high school, you know, by the advice of a good leader, to get a flashcard, man, put a verse on it, and keep it in your pocket. And I cannot tell you how many days I would have a verse. Just tw- I mean, I have so many verses memorized because of that. You know, and sometimes I get bored and I look at it, you know, it's all crumpled up. You know, a lot of times I'd put it back in my pocket and I'd just be going to math class, I'd be doing whatever, and I'd go in my pocket or something and I'd feel it. And then I'd remember the verse. Romans 13, 14. Rather do not gratify the desires of the flesh, but clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I exhort you, brother. You know, just verse after verse after verse. Because this word is living and it's active. Because it's powerful. Do you guys memorize scripture? 
Do you meditate on it? Do you just simply read it? But third, third thing I would say is, is learn to see the value of what it teaches you. This is a hard point because I think this last week I have just seen the outworking of someone who didn't listen to this point. God's word is so helpful for life. Sound doctrine always leads to practical living. Like guys, like every summer, I don't know if you know this, I just try to incorporate the book of Proverbs into as many things as I can. To live a wise life, right? I cannot tell you how helpful it is just some of the practical things that God's word teaches us about life. It is so accurate. Wisdom calls aloud in the street and says, you know, how long will you simple ones love your simple ways? If you would just listen to me, you would avoid calamity. And I cannot tell you how many men, how many women just ignore that call. And when calamity overstrikes them, If you just would have listened, you would have avoided so much hurt and pain. And can I tell you something too? Sometimes I I watch these YouTube videos of like leadership guys. There's really a popular guy named Simon Sinek and he talks about how to like manage and lead millennials. And he got, got, he went viral, man. Like everyone's listening to this and they thought he was so great. I honestly felt like I was watching someone plagiarize the Bible. Like, you are just saying everything that Christ has said about leadership. Respect people. Honor them. Seek their good above your own good. Have I heard this before? So many people waste money on all of this modern psychology and all of these self-help books. I just think, like, the Bible is so much better. So many of the devotionals out there that I would just say are garbage. The book of Psalms are way better than that. So just use the Bible for, for wisdom, for life. It will help you. I forget the fourth point, but I'll just go to the fifth point. Here it is. Absorb yourself. And as much preaching as you can. I've often said, if you um, one day grow up and you go to a different church, and they don't ever ask you to open up your Bible and look down at it, and if you're not convinced that the pastor is using the Word of God as the primary you know, means of his ministry, I would say, what do I say? Find a different church. Any church that does not make this word central to its ministry, find a different church. Go somewhere else. And, and what I mean by that is like the pastor might open it, read a verse, close the Bible, and then just kind of talk about a bunch of stuff. Go somewhere else. If you don't have godly leaders in your life who are constantly telling you to look back down at this word, what is God's word teaching us? How is God giving us his grace through his word? Go somewhere else. You know, I mentioned John Calvin earlier. He gets there in 1536, and all of this Reformed theology is new, and some people are still warring against it. And so the hostility got so great in Geneva that two and a half years into his pastoral ministry, John Calvin was fired. He said, leave. And he was forced to pack up his things in the night and leave because the hostility was so great. 
1541, three years later, John Calvin was begged to come back. They finally lowered the opposition. They asked him to come to preach again. He did so reluctantly, but felt like God was calling him to it. First Sunday back, he didn't get up there and say, hey, I told you so. Then, you know, I'm Bach. None of that, you know, no pomp. But you know what he did? He opened up to the very next passage of scripture that he had been preaching through three years before. Three years before, he was in the middle of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 14. Gets fired, comes back, doesn't say anything. Matthew 14, just picks up right where he left off. Probably one of my favorite stories of church history. Because so much of pastoral ministry is just the next text, just the next passage of just the steady diet of the word of God. Surround yourself with people who point you to this word because this word is powerful to lay our intentions and our hearts before God. And because it is powerful, we should listen to it. We should care about it. We should want to have as much gospel preaching. We should want to read it. We should want to memorize it. We should want to study it. Because it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May it be this word that helps us to strive to enter the rest, the rest of God's salvation found in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this powerful word. Thank you, God. Uh, you desire for us to know who you are. You desire for us to be saved. And so, Father, I pray that we would give careful attention to these words. Help us, Lord, to have the faith to believe. Help us to not be like the Israelites who heard the good news preached to them, but they did not believe. But Lord, thank you that you have cause for some of us to believe and to enter that rest because of this word. May we as a youth group, may we as a church always commit ourselves in a heart of humility to be laid bare before it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.